The following talk was given at the Insight Meditation Center in Redwood City, California. Please visit our website at audiodharma.org. So good morning. For these three weeks, of which we're on the middle one now, we've been examining ways that we can develop the mind to have more of what are called the beautiful states. And this is a wonderful thing to do because the beautiful states are feel beautiful to us also. And so we get the immediate benefit and then, of course, they help all the others around us too. So this is the, the verse that um, kind of points, points toward this from the Dhammapada. Doing no evil, engaging in what's skillful, and purifying one's mind. This is the teaching of the Buddhas. It's pretty simple. As I mentioned last time, these three aren't really separate. You know, the part about doing no evil is more about restraint, which is, um, but that in that is quite related to development, which is what the other two are about. So today the topic is called benevolence, and this is a a word that I've um, become interested in, and I'm trying it out. Benevolence itself, the definition of it, if you sort of look up online, where is this word used, what does it usually mean, it's actually quite related to generosity. It has to do with uh, supporting people. It's the same word, the same root that, con- that produces benefactor, someone who's helpful, gives things. But the, the root of the word, of course, is goodwill, right? So bena is the good part, and then the vol is the same as volition. So it's goodwill. And I'm using this word for today, in general, to mean both ethical behavior, so things like speech and actions that are in relation to other beings, and then also um, metta, or loving-kindness, or, and also the other brahma-viharas, the, more, um, the basis of good behavior, so the attitudes and views that, uh, and intentions that underlie that. So I'm sort of playing with it as a good expression for this beautiful mind. So if we're in the realm of benevolence, there are so many good qualities and actions that we could talk about, but we won't have time for. <laughs> so there's things like patience or truthfulness and, of course, generosity, but we already had a whole talk on that last time. So this second talk will focus mostly on ethical behavior, also called sila in the Buddhist tradition, and loving-kindness, or metta, as representatives of wholesome speech, action, and thought. Essentially, non-harming is the standard for all kinds of behavior in Buddhism. And there are, of course, many, many ways to develop and practice non-harming. So again, I'm just going to have to focus on a few. Um, But don't worry, even the few that we're focusing on would be enough practice for a lifetime, I think. And then, so then there's the fact that there's even more just shows the generosity of the universe in providing us with ways of developing ourselves. Broadly speaking, practicing ethical behavior tends to focus on outward relational actions and then loving-kindness and 
compassion and other kinds of brahma-viharas, we'll talk about what that is, are more about the heart, mind, thoughts, intentions. They're what allow us to enter situations with a non-harming presence. Before we even say or do anything, we can have that kind of presence where we are. So let me pause a little bit first and say that sometimes people feel a little bit put off when they hear about ethics or ethical behavior or kindness for all beings or something. Um, Sometimes there can be a top-level response of, oh, one more thing I'm supposed to do in order to be good or in order to be a good Buddhist or something. So I want to point out that the Buddha did not frame it this way at all, actually. He, he never said, these are things that you have to do in order to be acceptable in a certain way or gain my favor, certainly. That's more of a Christian idea. The genuine motivations for offering benevolent action and emotion have a lot to do with helping ourselves in addition to helping others. Uh, which is not at all a selfish thing to do. Very simply, we don't harm others because we love ourselves at some level and we don't want to take that on as something that we have to be aware that we've done. And we also see that others love themselves too. I mean, if I care about myself, others do too, and so I wouldn't want to treat them in ways that I wouldn't want to be treated. It has its own kind of internal sense to it. There's a particular sutta that describes this nicely. Um, There was a king, and he was a student of the Buddha. um, And he was standing with his wife out on a terrace, outside the upper terrace of the palace, it says. And uh, he's standing there with his queen, and he says to her, Malika, that's her name, my dear, is there anyone dearer to you than yourself? Maybe he's thinking, he might be, (laughs) I don't know. (laughs) And she says very honestly, Your Majesty, there's no one dearer to me than myself, actually. And how about you? Is there anyone dearer to you than yourself? And he has to say, no, there's no one dearer to me than myself either. And so he thinks about this, and little exchange, and he goes to the Buddha and he repeats the whole thing. And the Buddha is very approving, um, And he says, Though in thought we range throughout the world, we'll nowhere find a thing more dear than ourself. So, since others hold the self so dear, one who loves themselves should injure none. Isn't that interesting? He turns it into a teaching that says, this root of self-care, or of, you know, just wanting to look out for ourselves, is actually the basis for non-harming, for not harming others. We're going to go into more detail about how that can come about. As an intellectual exercise, it can sound like there's a gap in the logic. But um, as we start practicing with ethical behavior, we understand how very, very consistent this teaching is. So let's talk a little bit about sila. I see this as having a very top-level guiding principle, as well as then specific specifics that come out of that. And I, I saw this top-level guidance framed in a very nice way. Uh, it said, anything that diminishes a person's humanity is unethical. I thought that was pretty good. 
So then we have to look, what is that? You know, how do we diminish people? How we speak to them or act about them? You know, how might that diminish them? And ourself is included. How, how might we inadvertently or consciously diminish ourselves in various ways? And that too is unethical. And then the specific guidelines that are offered, since that top level might not be specific enough, are often stated as what's called the five precepts. I'm not going to go through them in great detail since you may have heard of them um, and I want to go in a different direction, but for completeness I will, I will name them. The five precepts for lay people are to refrain from killing, stealing, sexual misconduct, lying, and intoxicants. So, even that, though, then leads to the question of, well, how do I practice with that? Is it all just about restraint and not doing and, you know, similar to thou shalt not, etc.? And I, I don't think that's quite the case. Again, we can look to a, a teaching of the Buddha. This is one that he gave to his seven-year-old son. So, you know, somebody who's just entering into the world and needs some guidance about how to behave. And it's quite a nice um, sutta. I won't have time to read the whole thing. I'll, I'll summarize in that he asks his son quite simply to reflect. He says, what is a mirror for? And the son says, it's for reflection. He says, in the same way, we can reflect before, during, and after an act of body, speech, or mind to see is this going to cause harm? Is this causing harm now as I'm doing it? And looking back, was there any co- harm caused through that? And in each case, we check. And you know, if it didn't, if it looked like it was okay, then we keep going. And if we look back and there was some problem, then we make amends in some way. It's really quite quite simple. But I think um, what what captures me, my interest in this particular way of teaching it, is that he's not just saying, don't do X if it violates one of these precepts that I've laid down. You know, so we're spending all of our time looking, oh, is this, should I, should I stop? Am I not? You know, it's all about not. He's actually saying, look at where it looks like it's okay, and then go ahead. Go ahead and keep checking. This is a, a dynamic, real-life practice. Um, where we're encouraged to actually act and reflect on it. It's, it's not only about the restraint, as long as we're paying attention. He doesn't say act and don't notice. <laughs> he says act and notice. Do things, speak, interact with people, do things in a certain way and see how it feels. And from that, we gradually train ourselves. So it's a process of checking, acting, reflecting, modifying, and acting again. It's a living practice that we do in real life. Whose life? Our life. <laughs> this life. Where else could we do it? We train ourselves through our own actions and reflections. So we're not enjoined to do things because of an outside authority, even the Buddha. Instead, these are inner precepts that we accomplish to a greater or lesser degree. We all know that we have a range of how well we accomplish these things. And we learn from that. You know, we learn from wherever we are on that spectrum of accomplishing it or not in a given case. And we're mindful of our behavior and we observe for ourselves the effect of following and not following them. And then we learn. 
then it becomes clear. Um, Because we test in our own experience what's said in the opening lines of the Dhammapada. Experience are preceded by mind, led by mind, made by mind. Speak or act with an impure mind, and suffering follows, as the wheel of the cart follows the hoof of the ox. Experiences are preceded by mind, led by mind, made by mind. Speak or act with a pure mind, and happiness follows like a never-departing shadow. So we're asked not to believe this, but to test it in our own experience. Is it really true that if we're speaking or acting in a way that is diminishing a person's humanity, whether it's ourselves or others, does that come with a painful feeling? And uh, if we're speaking or acting in a way that is supportive and beneficial and benevolent, does that come with a feeling of happiness? It's kind of a nice way that the universe is put together, isn't it? (laughs) I mean, it's pretty good (laughs) that it works that way. So another um, teacher said it more succinctly, happiness is not the reward for virtue. Happiness is virtue itself. So that is, you know, if you're thinking in terms of reward, ethical behavior is its own reward. because it feels good, it brings happiness, and unethical behavior is its own punishment, quote-unquote. We don't usually think that way, but it's its own punishment, if you will, because it doesn't feel good. And, and, and what? Beings care about themselves. They hold themselves most dear. So this is pointing toward we can. it's okay to tap into our heart to that part of us that says, yes, I hold myself dear, and therefore... <laughs> I will behave in a way that doesn't diminish people. I will behave wholesomely. A natural result, I think, of this kind of practice where we're doing the self-guidance through how things actually feel in the moment as opposed to an idea, more like how they feel in the moment, I think it's that we develop some flexibility about the specific actions that we're doing and we start giving stronger weight to the spirit of the precepts and not so much to the letter. I have to be careful, of course. I mean, the spirit is non-harming. Sometimes it'll look one way to be ethical, and sometimes we'll have to do something slightly different um, that wouldn't have been appropriate in the first situation, but is in the second one. Of course, we have to little, be a little bit careful, given that... Uh, Our minds are not perfectly pure yet, and so the mind is tricky, and it will provide justifications for doing certain things that aren't quite right. But I have a lot of trust that if we're devoted to mindfulness, in addition to non-harming, that eventually our mind won't be able to fool us like that. Eventually the mindfulness is going to notice that this isn't quite in line. But it's true that we're not asked to apply a formulaic approach. You know, oh, every time I'm in this situation, I should say X. Very rarely is something like that a a good principle. We need to pay more attention in the actual moment. And sometimes we'll say X and sometimes we'll say Y. And X would not have been so good to say in that situation. It doesn't mean it's all relative. It's actually quite specific in each case what we what is the most non-harming thing or the way that feels the most aligned. It just happens that different cases are different. This is a more sophisticated look at, at ethics. 
So practicing in this kind of reflective way of doing and then reflecting or, you know, considering and then doing if it doesn't seem like it'll cause harm and then watching and then doing it and then checking did it cause harm. It's not so much a matter of thinking, although that can be useful. I think reflective thought about our actions at a time when we're calm and peaceful can be very beneficial and useful. But it can also lead towards something that's quite intuitive. I have a a small example of this. Um, Recently I was uh, walking along a hiking trail and I found a ratty paperback book on the trail. It was a book about vegan cooking, actually. And I do have a friend who's vegan and likes to cook, so I, of course, naturally thought of her. But, you know, the trail etiquette on a hiking trail is that if you find something dropped, like a hat or a book, I suppose, is that you put it on the side of the trail and somewhere prominent so that if the person realizes they lost it and come backtracking, they'll be sure to see it. And it also gets it out of the way so people aren't going to step on it and stuff. So... um, But interestingly, when I saw this book, I picked it up and started walking with it. And my logical mind um, objected. (laughs) And it said, what? Am I stealing? Why am I taking this book? And even if I had the thought of giving it to my friend, nominally a generous thought, is that really generosity if it wasn't wasn't like it was my book to give? So it was interesting. And... and, um, it was fascinating to watch my mind um, at this moment. I, I didn't feel like I was doing something especially, like in sort of in my gut, in my heart, I didn't feel like this was the wrong thing because it was unusual behavior to pick it up and start walking. But my, so my logical mind had a lot of problems with this. Um, and, but still my body was continuing to walk. And I was very mindful of what was going on. And about five minutes up the trail, I came upon a man fixing his bike. This was one of those wide trails that bikes can go on also. And he looked like something was wrong with the chain or the sprocket, and he was bent over there trying to, you know, he obviously couldn't ride anymore. And on the ground next to him was a stack of ratty paperback books. (laughs) And he didn't have a bag. Probably he'd been balancing them on the handlebars or carrying them while he was riding. And quite naturally, I walked up to him with the book, and I said, is this yours? Did you drop it? And he said, oh, yes, thank you, and went back to his bike. And I walked on. I guess that worked. <laughs> I have no idea if he would have gone back and looked for the book. Maybe he would have. But anyway, it, it's amazing what can happen when we just calmly do what needs doing, regardless of thought. Um, so, you know, I'm not advocating just totally going with what your gut feels like every moment, because um, we know that we have hidden motives that we're not always aware of, but don't be too caught by uh, the supposed requirements either. So the precepts protect ourselves and others, and they're a very rich place for practice. Um, you'll never, I, I don't think I will ever need to stop practicing because the world continually um, challenges, you know, brings challenges to my sense of uprightness. But that's important. It's important to have a practice where we always have to be paying attention. So let me turn a little bit more now towards the intention behind our actions. When we start observing, if we really take on sila as a practice, we're going to have to start looking at why we're doing things. 
right? Because this reflective exercise says check before you're going to do something. So you have to know what you're about to do and have a feeling, is that the right thing? And when we observe, we will surely notice that our intentions are mixed, yeah? We talked about this last time, actually, in relation to generosity, where we may be giving out of the free, open goodness of our heart at a given moment. That can happen to anyone. And sometimes we're giving with an underlying motivation of wanting to receive in return or wanting to look good or wanting to prove something or something. We have something else going on. It's the same for other acts of body, speech, and mind. Uh, We may find that we're doing certain things with um, mixed motives, as I said. So fortunately, our intentions and more broadly our attitudes are something that can be developed. They're not just, we're not stuck with what we have at this moment, can be changed over time. This is a part of the mind that can be trained. And it's a whole other realm of cultivating benevolence, which of course means goodwill, right? The will, the motive that we have going on in our mind. We may very well still be carrying the seeds of anger or greed, long after we have the control not to hit people or steal things, you know, we're still carrying those seeds at some level. So there are further internal practices that develop, uh, in particular, four excellent emotional or attitudinal qualities that we can have. These are called the Brahma-viharas. I mentioned that word earlier. Um, it's a it's a, I think it's a Sanskrit or Pali word. I don't remember if it's Sanskrit or Pali. That means uh, basically abode of the gods. It's kind of lofty kind of term for mind states that are quite refined and beautiful, actually. And they are, these four in particular are called loving kindness or metta, compassion or karuna, sympathetic joy or mudita, and equanimity or upekka. So these four are the beautiful qualities of the heart that provide excellent motivations for actions or also they're just resting places for the mind. Ayakema said they're the only four emotions worth having. (laughs) She was quite a blunt teacher. But it's kind of (laughs) true. So we don't have time to look at more than just the first loving kindness in in any detail in terms of practice, but I hope what I'll be able to convey through that is that uh, that practice alone will go very far and and actually, in fact, folds into the others. I'll describe how metta practice ends up developing and linking to the other three. So it's not like they're getting short shrift, I promise. As with ethical behavior, there are lots and lots of practices that one can do to develop metta, and so uh, we'll stay concrete and not try to cover all of them. That would be too much. So, basically metta, or loving kindness, means wishing well. Wishing well for ourselves, for people we love and care about, for people we don't know, and even for people we find difficult. Ultimately, it extends in all directions to all beings. Metta moves toward boundlessness as it develops. So a common way of generating and working with metta is to say formal phrases. Some of you may know about that, and if you don't, it's okay. You'll surely encounter it at some point. But for today, I wanted to offer something 
a little bit different and maybe more easily applicable in daily life. I've put together, I've just pulled out four lines from a particular sutta that's called the Metta Sutta. It is a beautiful, beautiful medium-length sutta that um, talks about how metta can kind of be developed and infuse our whole life and take us through the whole path of um, ethics and wisdom and concentration. But these four lines stand out. Even as a mother protects with her life, her child, her only child, so with a boundless heart should one cherish all living beings. I think those are pretty powerful. So how... How can we use these lines as a basis for working with the intention of goodwill in our heart? I'll just offer this as an, as an option. So one way that we could consider those lines in relation to our life is to feel into that kind of love that a mother or a father, for that matter, has for his or her child. So this love is a very strong connection Uh, We've all been a child, if not a parent, uh, even if not a parent. And so we may have some visceral feel of this kind of love. But it's possible that these four lines sound challenging. You know, even as a mother protects with her child, protects with her life, her child, so with a boundless heart should one cherish all living beings. It's like, wow, we're supposed to cherish all living beings like that? But this is good. The teachings on metta are actually often challenging. Why? Because they push against the barriers that we've erected in our heart. And you know, we have a lot of walls in our heart uh, that we've put up for various reasons, thought they were important. And the teachings on metta start to pick at the base of those, <laughs> hopefully until they crumble, undermining them. But they feel challenging, you know, while we think that wall is important. So that's good. So in a practical sense, I find it interesting to look at other beings, real beings that we're seeing right now, not something abstract that we're envisioning or conjuring in our mind, but the real beings that we're here right now, and ask, uh, can we care for this being? That can be the bridge toll collector, our coworker, our partner sitting across the dinner table, the cat next door, the ant on this flower, you know, there's a lot of beings that we see every day. And the question is, you know, anyone or anywhere, can we feel a sense of protection and cherishing of all beings? And to what degree can't we or don't we in a given moment? Sometimes this moment we do and that moment we don't or something like that. And this is all data. Uh, This is all information for mindfulness. It's not to beat ourselves up and say, oh, I should be more this, oh, why can't I generate this for this person? We just notice at this moment it's not coming. And what does that feel like in my heart? Or at this moment it is. Oh, wow, I do care about this ant. That's kind of (laughs) cool. So, you know, play with this a little bit and notice the ease that comes at the moments when there are feelings of care and the dis-ease that comes when there's aversion or contraction in some way and feel how that is affecting our heart first before we even speak or act and affect anyone else. The heart will soften bit by bit. This is a gradual process. 
Sometimes distinct cues are helpful too. Um, I try to bring metta to mind, for instance, when I hear a siren, like an ambulance or a fire engine siren. It's very easy then to say, oh, somebody's in trouble somewhere and just wish well for however that situation can unfold, may it unfold as well as it can, may there be help and support. It's a nice practice. And then I'll offer one other way, which is that another, another way to see these sutta lines is more symbolic. Um, a mother protecting with her life her child I'm not a mother, actually, so when I first read these lines, I thought, well, how are they really relevant for me, exactly? Um, And I started to realize, well, in a way, each moment that goes by, we're creating some kind of karma through what we do or say or think, and the child is the result of that. Yeah, so our child could be the karma that we're creating because we're going to inhabit that world. You know, we're in this world now, and what we do, we inhabit that world next. Um, we start to see this as we practice. So what is our inheritance? This is our inheritance as we flow through time. Our descendants are the results of our actions, the fruits of our actions. And if we're going to protect that, it's a good idea to behave wholesomely, because... <laughs> Um, just like the first lines of the Dhammapada say, you know, if we speak or act with an impure mind, suffering will follow. And if we speak or act with a peaceful mind, then happiness will follow. So in the same way, we're the mother of that child. We're going to protect it, perhaps, by behaving well or speaking well or thinking well. So we can observe how that goes. We observe that caring for others feels a lot better to our own heart as we proceed through time. So if, if either of those ways of looking at these lines speak to you, that's great. If, if they don't, that's okay. Um, you may find other ways that these particular lines speak to you and are relevant in your life. Or if you're just intrigued by that, the idea of practicing that way, I recommend going and reading the Metta Sutta. It's easily found online. See if a different set of couple lines sticks out to you. I think every line of that sutta has something to say about how we practice in our life. So I encourage you maybe to find the ones that speak to you and see uh, see how that might apply. So developing metta, however you choose to do it, actually pulls in the other Brahma Viharas too. The compassion, the sympathetic joy, and the equanimity. We can't uh, we can't not touch into those also. And I'll explain a little bit about that. Um, the kind of untrained or run-of-the-mill mind tends to meet suffering with blame, judgment, denial, other kind of reactive responses. But it is said, and we can observe this in ourselves, that when the loving heart meets suffering, the love just changes naturally to compassion. You know, we, we feel this sense of care, either for ourselves or for others, we're feeling that. And then if we see a suffering being, be it ourselves or others, there's an opening, a softening, a quivering, it's said, of the heart um, that is, is compassion. Kind of like a mother would have for a sick child. You know, they love this child dearly, they have the connection, the child is sick, they feel compassion. 
we can observe this possibility in our heart. And of course, we'll observe that it's not always there. It doesn't always come, and that's okay. That's just something else to observe. And we can, but we can observe that this is a possibility and even incline our mind toward it if, if it's of interest. Similarly, when the heart of metta, the loving heart, the open heart, meets another person's gain or happiness, we feel joy. You know, we feel this sympathetic sense of, wow, that's so great. This mudita comes forth. This is like a mother rejoicing at her child succeeding. And, you know, maybe the child is leaving home, finishing school, and they have bright opportunities in the world, and the mother is delighted to send them out. There's this sense of joy and, you know, co-experiencing that, that happiness. And, of course, as we observe, we don't always feel that. There's the contraction of envy or, you know, um, something else that may get in the way. And so then we notice, oh, that's, that's getting in the way of mudita. Mudita is a possibility, but there's something not happening there. And that's okay, too. We observe that. Oh, yeah, there's that in my heart. Get to know this heart. When is it open? When is it closed? Um, and just kind of roll with how it goes. This is a a way of developing. And then balancing all of these is equanimity, which is a very deep form of love that allows things to be as they are. If you love something, set it free. Like parents who are able to let go of their adult child and let them make their own decisions in the world. So, benevolence. Yeah, it's a... It's a heart quality, and just as we moved in the, in the last talk, when we talked about dana as an act of giving, we moved to chaga as the disposition to give, you know, the sort of underlying part. In the same way, doing these practices of ethics and of metta, they change our heart so that benevolence becomes part of the very fiber of our being. You know, it just comes into our heart. And that can manifest in, in many ways. I'll, I'll describe a couple, but there are surely more. So one way that we begin noticing that benevolence is kind of part of our way of being is that we have a strong presence of qualities that are called the guardians of the world, hiri and otapa, which are often said together as hiriotapa, which I kind of like. Hiriotapa is the ingrained disposition to act ethically and to act benevolently. Hiri is also called self-respect. I won't go into great detail in this, but it's also called self-respect. It means feeling kind of a healthy sense of, I'll use the word shame, but that's, um, you know, we don't have to make it heavy, but it's a healthy sense that certain things that we've done were beneath us. So we have self-respect, we have an ethical standard for ourselves, and occasionally, as we all, you know, since we're human, we don't live up to that. And then we feel a little bit of a pang. Ugh, I didn't quite like the way I said that on the phone, you know? And so that's hiri. And it's, um, it's a good feeling, it's a guardian of the world, because you're going to go back and say to your friend, I'm sorry, I didn't mean to say it that way, or I'm concerned about that what I said might have sounded like, how did you feel? You know, questions like that. And if we didn't have that sense, that little pang, we wouldn't have made that action to make, you know, to fix that relationship. And sometimes our friend says, what? I didn't even notice. (laughs) So, you know, you don't know. But 
that that sense of um, feeling that uh, certain actions are not not worthy of us and we need to do something about that. So it's definitely not paralyzing guilt. It's not beating ourselves up. It's just um, being clean in a certain way. And then otapa is also called conscience. And it means being concerned about the ethical qualities of actions before we do them. So this is actually kind of what the Buddha was talking about developing for his seven-year-old son by doing all that reflecting and checking. You know, develop this sense of concern after actions and concern before actions. So when we have strong otapa and we start to do something, we'll get a warning that says, danger, (laughs) getting close to an edge. You feel yourself starting to make that comment or starting to you know, pick up a pen and put it in your bag from work and, you know, something like that. That's, And we just get this sense, no, this isn't the right thing. And when it's very well developed, we won't be able to do unethical things. The repulsion is just going to be too strong. So this is another beautiful quality. It's not super pleasant while you're feeling it. It's a feeling of, uh. <laughs> but here in Otapa are considered wholesome, unpleasant feelings, if you will. And... <laughs> Sorry to say it that way, but it's true. And they and they guard the world. You know, they if people didn't have any of that, imagine what the world would be like. So lest it was sounding like our mind gets weak when it gets uh, tender and soft and open and beautiful, I hope this points toward actually a strong mind. An ethical, kind heart is very strong. Why? It can withstand all kinds of distractions and temptations. It's not fooled by enticements of short-term pleasure. It's wise enough to see through the antics of our childish desires. So this is a strong heart, a heart that's really devoted to ethics and goodwill. A second way that, um, sort of a manifestation of long-term benevolence practice, you know, which way is your heart going? is what I would call benevolence for the process. And that means, you know, you're devoted to the path, you've been walking the path for a while, and you start realizing that we can allow our practice to unfold without getting in our own way. Sometimes at the beginning there's a lot of, you know, got to do this, got to make it this, trying to control it, manipulate our development, want to do this, want to do that, want to be a certain way. And at some point, the... Um, And that can be good in the case where we have strong desires that are pulling us out. We have to really bring ourselves to the path. So I think at the beginning, this kind of effort is fine. But at some point, the plant has sprouted. The seed is growing. And we don't need to pull on the plant to make it grow faster. In fact, that starts being harmful, right? And so the kind of inherent violence, if you will, I'll use a strong word, the violence of manipulating our own practice becomes ethically unacceptable. And so we back off and we have benevolence to open and allow ourselves to unfold as we will on the path. And it's kind of a softening and opening to what the path is bringing us, you know, once we know that we're on the path. So this benevolence is kind of a union of generosity and love and compassion and virtue and patience and other many good many good qualities benevolence for the process so the buddha spoke very highly of this type of spiritual development that we've talked about today you know this type of development of the heart 
I have a couple nice verses about that. Train yourself in doing good that lasts and brings happiness. Cultivate generosity, the life of peace, and a mind of boundless love. And then also, think not lightly of good, saying, it will not come to me. Drop by drop is the water pot filled. Likewise, the wise one, gathering it little by little, fills oneself with good. So every little action matters. So in summary, the teachings on generosity and virtue and metta, they all point towards the creation of excellent karma. I mean, this is bringing enormous amounts of happiness into our life, happiness for ourselves and for others. Specifically, we have a heart that's settled and happy and and it has no regrets. It's called the bliss of blamelessness. It's something that we can enjoy from this kind of practice. And it would be possible to stop right here and have a very happy life. I mean, if we, and goodness knows, if more people did this kind of practice, the world would be completely transformed. <laughs> um, but recall the initial verse. It says, doing no evil engaging in what's skillful and purifying one's mind. This is the teaching of the Buddhas. So as if that weren't enough, there's actually a further benefit of doing these benevolence practices. And that is the ability to become calm in meditation, which is actually the best fruit, turns out. We gain the ability to develop our mind in meditation So next time, we're going to talk about the main forms of meditative development, which are concentration and insight practices, and the teaching unique to the Buddha, the possibility of ending suffering. It's interesting that actually creating the happiest possible life that we can through excellent karma is not quite enough, actually, to end all suffering. So this starts to point towards how really radical the Buddha was um, in what he offered. So we're going to look at some even deeper forms of happiness that can come, um, that can be achieved through, than we can achieve through the generation of good karma. But we do the good karma in order to get us to that point. So that's a little advertisement for next week. (laughs) But in the meantime, have a wonderful week of benevolence. (laughs) Thank you.